I really love that song. Hey, it's such a precious song to me. Um, it really speaks to the reason for Easter in such a powerful way. Um, it just talks about the whole reason, I think, for uh, Easter in one big go. And so we're going to be thinking about that this morning. So I want you to keep that song in your, in your mind. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But I also want to get us thinking about today. I want to introduce a totally random, different topic uh, zombies, right? <laughs> You're like, what has zombies got to do with Easter? Well, uh, it, zombies are something that I think our culture is kind of obsessed with in a way, right? You think about uh, this here, if it's going to come up, plants versus zombies, right? This is a game that was released on uh, in 2009 on the iPad. Uh, I have to say my first iPad that I bought in 2010 had this game on it. Lots of fun. Um, this game was one of the most downloaded games ever on the iPhone and the iPad, um, and it is actually the top, the highest grossing launched game. So when they launched it in the first whatever number of days they measure, it's still the highest grossing game, Plants vs. Zombies. This is what it looks like to play the game, right? And so how you play is you are the homeowner during a zombie apocalypse, and you have to plant plants on the left that have special abilities to destroy the zombies on the right who are trying to come across and, and capture your house and, and destroy you, right? So that's Plants vs. Zombies, one of the highest grossing uh, games on the iPad of all time. Then you get things like uh, this here, The Walking Dead. I'm sure you've heard of this, a long-running TV show. It's one of the most successful TV shows of all time, one of the highest-rated, highest-earning TV shows of all time based on a... Uh, on a comic book about a zombie apocalypse, funnily enough. Uh, then you've got, again, um, <clears throat> movies that have... This movie, never watched this during lockdown, right? I watched this last year during level four lockdown, and it's about a zombie pandemic that takes over the globe, and it's the worst thing you want to watch, this and, like, Outbreak and all of those uh, things about viruses. You don't want to watch them during while well, you're locked down because you see so much of how the world that really would react in a, in a situation like this. Um, it gets too real. But basically, uh, it's about a zombie plague that takes over the world. And how do we contain it? How do we figure out what to do with it? How do we fight back against these undead? Humans have this fascination, I think, with the undead or what it means to continue living after death. I think maybe partly as well because we can't imagine, especially in our modern world, which is where all of these ideas have kind of come about, this idea of mummies coming back to life and zombies, you know, people coming back and being reanimated, things like Frankenstein, because we can't imagine in our... I mean, the, the predominant way of viewing the world today is materialism, that this stuff is all that there is, that there's no life after death. And so it kind of fascinates us what might happen, how might we come back to life. Um, and then there's this true story that I want to share with you about a guy who, want, who is classified as undead. <laughs> okay, this is his name, Winston Bright. This is him here. And uh, in 1990, he uh, got ready for his job. He worked uh, in New York as a, as a switch, uh, telephone switch man at uh, the New York telephone office. And he got ready for work, went off. He, he was married, had three kids, went to the office at lunchtime, called his wife, you know, just to check in and say, look, I'll probably be home around 5.30. I'm going to be leaving the office, so um, 
get ready, you know, have dinner ready at 6 o'clock or whenever it is that he was getting home. That was the last time his family heard from him. He disappeared. Um, He never came back to his apartment. Uh, He was the subject of a missing person investigation. Uh, For more than a year, they searched for this man, couldn't find him. Uh, Ten years later, finally, his wife in the year 2000 had him declared legally dead. She'd be holding out hope. You know, normally it's like seven years and and they declare them dead, but she'd been holding out hope that he'd come back, but she needed the insurance and, and the pension and the extra income, so she finally had him declared legally dead. However, a couple of years later, he turns up. He turns up. He just appears, and he says that in 1990, he suffered from a rare form of amnesia that just made him forget his life. And he just was like, whoa, who am I? How did I get here in New York? And he kind of wandered around the country for a while and um, made his way over to California on the opposite side of the United States, on the West Coast. So he went from east to west. And he had this life there. He had this identity. Um, but in 2007, all of a sudden, he, start, he claims he started to get his memories back. And um, his West Coast friends helped him to piece together his life. And, and he came back and he tried to contact his wife and kids. This is like 17 years after he disappeared. And you can imagine that his wife, Leslie, was not too happy <laughs> about the fact that uh, he'd suddenly reappeared after she'd had him declared dead and he wants to be declared alive and everything like this. Um, I found it really interesting because you get news headlines like this. Dead man missing for 20 years returns wants to be declared alive. <laughs> this is such a sticky situation, isn't it? That like he, he claims that he'd had amnesia, either that or he was just really good at running away. Um, and that he wants, suddenly wants to be declared alive or undead. I thought that was really interesting. And then he had to go through courts and everything like this. East Village Amnesiac regains life after vanishing, but wife not thrilled with his return. <laughs> I think that's like an understatement of the century, isn't it? Wife not filled with, thrilled with his return. This is kind of all like the realm of fiction, though, isn't it? Like you, science fiction and uh, zombies and people coming back to life and weird coincidences like this. You kind of go, it's too hard to believe. And heaps of people have disbelieved this and gone, now nah, this isn't a real story. And they've had to go through fact-checking websites to actually, this did happen. And I can find it, uh, I can understand why people find it so hard to believe. Because it is such an odd thing. Death seems so final. And yet today we're celebrating what we claim to be the first and only person who's genuinely resurrected, right? You think about the people that Jesus brought back to life in his lifetime, people like Lazarus, really famous, the widow's widow of Nain's son. He was on his way to be buried in his funeral, and Jesus raised him up. Um, or the people that Elijah brought back to life. Those are what we might not technically call resurrection because they died again later. So it might be revivification, if you want to go with a technical term. Right? They brought him back to life. But Jesus is resurrection, which is life after life after death. <laughs> okay, So Jesus went to wherever it was that the dead go, to Sheol or Hades or wherever that was, and then he came back to new life, different life, resurrection life. Okay, So his is the only case, we claim, is the only case of genuine resurrection. And you can understand, even the people that followed Jesus found it hard to believe that he'd come back to life. Um, John's Gospel, for example, John 20, 19 to 29. It's a long passage. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today because it's important for us, I think, to reflect on Easter through the lens of the Bible and what it tells us about 
um, about this event, the resurrection. When it was evening on the first day of the week, that's the same day that Jesus rose, the Sunday, the disciples were gathered together and the door, with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. That would be so random, eh? It's like doors locked, we're all hunkered down, and then poof, there's Jesus. Peace be with you. You're like, whoa, okay. Hi, Jesus. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, it's classic empiricist, right? If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. He wants evidence, right? A week later, so on next Sunday, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, this would be awkward, eh? Is <laughs> you Thomas? Like, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And the amazing thing is that Matthew, or maybe Luke, one of the the um, apostles that accounts the recounts the um, ascension of Jesus. I think it's Matthew's gospel. They go out to the mount and Jesus is taken up and they all worship him, but Matthew makes a point of saying that some of them didn't believe. And you're like, but Jesus is right there in front of you. You see the, the hands, the, the, the feet and the side, and he's right there, and yet they don't believe. So even, you know, we go, oh, of course Thomas believed because he saw, but even some people that saw didn't believe. So this and other eyewitness testimony that we have in the Gospels leads us um, to believe that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, which leads to two other questions. Why did Jesus have to die? And what does it mean that he rose from the dead? These are two questions that we answer on Good Friday and Easter Sunday each year. And we're going to combine them this morning and take them together. So the first thing we're going to answer is, why did Jesus have to die? And this is where this song comes in. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This this claim is at the heart of why Jesus had to die. And to get context for this, we have to go back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 3. And we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, that Satan, this is Satan speaking to Eve. In fact, God knows, you will, he's, he's claimed to her, you know, that if you eat this fruit, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
That's the beginning of the story. And Paul, writing in Romans, interprets that for us and tells us what the meaning of this is. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, he's talking about this instance back in Genesis chapter 3, and death through sin. So because of this, Eve taking the fruit and eating it and giving it to Adam who was with her, sin and death entered in the world. In this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. So that's the problem. All have sinned. Jesus, uh, sorry, the letter to the Hebrews tells us there's only one way for us to be forgiven of our sins. And sin is our transgression, our turning away from God, our going our own way, our breaking of the law. Now, you guys will remember last week I told you I got selected for jury duty to do my civic duty this week. And uh, I didn't get called to a case. I know some of you are praying for me, and thank you for that. My prayer was that I wouldn't get selected for a jury, and so I'm glad my prayer was answered. But I did have a nervous moment, though. There was 117 of us, and they only needed 80 jurors for the day. So I thought, wow, that's good. I've got quite a high chance of not being selected to stay. So they started calling out names. So they just, you know, get to 10, 20, 30, no names, 40. I'm like, oh, good. There's only 40 left. I'll be fine. 50, that's great. 51, great. 52, great. 53, Jason Heal. Oh, no. So I got stuck there for that day. And then they split us in two to go to the two trials, so 40 at each trial. And they, uh, they put us in courtroom one. And they start the, you know, they've got the little bingo roller box and they roll it around and they pull out names. And they're like, okay, we just need 12 of you. So I'm like, okay, I got a, a seven. A seven out of ten chance of not getting selected. It's great. So number one, number two, number three, number four, Jason. Oh, no. So they call out my name and I start getting up and you have to walk to the jury box. You know this. And on the way, the lawyers can challenge you. And if they challenge you, you have to sit back down and you don't get selected. And so uh, I was walking up to the jury box very slowly to give them chance to just make sure that I was... uh, acceptable to them and so I was walking very slowly and I got to the end of the jury box and I was like oh no I'm gonna actually have to sit down and so I turn around then I hear challenge and I was like yes and I had to walk slowly back without doing a dance you know (laughs) I was too happy not to sit Um, and so I didn't uh, I didn't get selected it was close though it was very close I think they saw that I was a pastor and they were like, oh, he's going to give us a good, uh, a good outcome for our... It was the defense lawyers that, that challenged me. And the trial was for two ladies who were older ladies in their 60s, I think. And they were being charged with assault and um, uh, ooh, robbery. So they, they had beaten up some other lady and stole it. Well, they were accused. See, I don't know the verdict, so... Innocent until proven guilty. Is that right, Vincent? Yes. So I assume, unless they were proven guilty, they were accused of beating up a woman and stealing money from her purse. And that was pretty intense. But they were facing justice for the wrong that they had done. And this is what each of us have to face as well, the justice of God for the wrong that we have done, the sin that we have done. And Hebrews tells us that there's only one way to... Um, to get rid of that. So it says, if I can find it here, I'm going to skip over a couple of these things. Right. 
According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without blood, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there requires sacrifice for us to be forgiven, the shedding of blood. That's what the Old Testament tells us. Unfortunately, the blood of animals is not sufficient for the task. This is the Old Testament sacrificial system, and this is why they did the the Day of Atonement every year. Atonement is that word that means that there is uh, remission of sins paid for. It's not enough to remove the whole stain of sin and its effects. There needs to be more. There needs to be a perfect sacrifice, something that goes and digs up the roots of the sin nature. And so the book of Hebrews tells us, Again, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. So the writer to the Hebrews is pointing back to the law and saying, this is, this is good, but it's a shadow. It's not the reality of the actual thing that is needed. It can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifice they continually offer year after year. So he's saying that it's good, but it's not good enough to perfect the people who offer those sacrifices. There needs to be more. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? So he's like, if if the law had, the the sacrifices had done their job, you'd only need to do it once and never again because it would work all the time. Since the worshippers purified once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. He's saying each day on the Day of Atonement, you're reminded how sinful you are because the priest has to go in and make sacrifice for you again. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we've got to read that last sentence, and we've got to think on that. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is referring directly to the Day of Atonement because on the Day of Atonement, you'd slaughter the, the nice goat and, uh, and then there'd be another goat, you'd send it out into the desert. There's all this ceremony around it. It takes more. He goes on to tell us, though, in the, later in this chapter in verse 12, he says, but this man, and he's talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has per- perfected forever those who are sanctified. So, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the bulls of blood and goats or lambs or rams or ewes or whatever. The blood of Jesus is sufficient only to wash away our sin. So we're going to move on, talk about that's why Jesus had to die. Because of the sinful heart that is in each one of us. And the only way to wash that sin away, to cleanse it, is through his sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that did more than bulls or goats or anything could ever do. Well, what about the resurrection? Why is that such a big deal? Why do we have a day for the death of Jesus and a day for his resurrection? Why do we remember that? Well, there are two really short reasons, and I don't want to keep us going for too long. So we're going to talk about these fairly quickly. But Paul addresses this. Why bother with the resurrection? He addresses it in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about why is it such a big deal, the resurrection. Well, he says, If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That's a pretty, pretty harsh word, isn't it? Like if Jesus is not resurrected, if there is no Easter Sunday, your faith is worthless, 
you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. He's saying like the people who were Christian and died, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, that's it. They're done. They're done. There's nothing else. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You're going to go to the place of the dead and you're going to be judged by God because you haven't made atonement properly because Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Oh, gone too far. If we have put our hope, gone too far, it's coming back. Is it? Is it coming back? No. <laughs> Let's see if we can get it. Right, and we go. There we go. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope. It gives us hope. Because if we're, if we're only in it for this life, if there truly is, if we are truly materialist, then why not hope to be a zombie or a vampire or a werewolf or a, or a mummy or something like that? Why not just live the way that you want if there's nothing beyond this life? But because Jesus is raised and because we have good evidence, and I talked about this at Easter last year, um, the reasons why we can believe historically that the resurrection happened, then we can be certain that actually there's more to life. You can't look at the resurrection, at the empty tomb, at Jesus being raised bodily to life, look at it, believe in it, and then say, wow, it doesn't really matter. You know, I can live however I want in this life because it points us forward to the life that is to come. As I said before, resurrection is not just being brought back to life. It's being brought back to life after life after death. So we believe that there's life after death, but we believe that there is resurrection life after that. Right? Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but then he also tells us that after that, We'll be raised to life again, and we'll dwell with Christ forever. And the book of Revelation puts it like this in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Then it gets really good. He will wipe away. God will wipe away. It's not like you get to wipe your own eyes. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now, I love this first sentence. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Now, I don't know if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, but there's this, uh, there's this part in the movie. Yes, ooh, it's pretty intense, right? There's this part in the movie where Jesus is carrying his cross up the Via Dolorosa, and he gets up there and he stumbles and falls and his mum comes to him and she's like, oh, my son, my son. And he just looks at her and, you know, I imagine he's in total shock and kind of out of it at that point after the beating that he received. But he looks at her and he says, look, mum. Well, I don't know if he said, look, mum. <laughs> That's a very Kiwi way to say it. He just says, I'm making all things new. And it's that part, it ties it into this verse where he understands And Mel Gibson very cleverly portrayed in that movie that Jesus understood part of his mission was to bring about this kingdom and this new kingdom, this new life, to be about making all things new. 
That's the life we have to look forward to. Now, I'm sure most of you know of Joni Erickson. She uh, jumped into a shallow pool at the age of 17 and was paralyzed from the neck down. And she uh, became very famous because she painted wonderful paintings by holding the brush between her teeth and painting. Very talented lady. She had a ministry to, um, uh, to advocate for the rights of disabled people. And she was at a meeting one day. She wrote about this. She was at a meeting one day, um, and the person who was leading the meeting, and of course she sits in a wheelchair, and she's kind of braced in, and she can't really move out of that. And the leader of the meeting just said to uh, everyone to kneel in the presence of God and kneel before God, and she obviously couldn't. And she was crying in the meeting, and someone asked her if she was upset, and she said no. She looked around, and she said, this is what heaven is going to be like one day, and I'll get to join in. She said, I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone like me? What a perspective, right? How powerful that is. Yet if Christ has not been raised... Our faith is in vain, and we are to be pitied more than anyone else. Because if that's not true for Joni, she's looking forward to that, and that's not true. What a terrible thing. But we have confidence that the resurrection is true. And it's not only for the next life. In the book of Acts, Peter, the apostle, says, God raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. He talks about the resurrection. He says, therefore, because of the resurrection... Since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Peter's talking about the magnificent day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived and the apostles and the 120 in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and they preached the gospel on the streets and everyone's like, what's going on? And Peter preaches this long sermon and he says, look, remember what God prophesied in the, in the prophet Joel where God's spirit will be poured out and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. and All of these things, he said, that's today. The kingdom has come near. It has broken into the present age and it's done so because of the resurrection of Jesus. There's a different way to live, a different way of being in the world. There's life under a different king. Not Caesar, not the Pharisees, not the Sanhedrin, not you know, the government, not the president, not the queen, not anyone like that. You live under King Jesus. That life empowered by the Holy Spirit where you can partake in the first fruits of the kingdom now. You can see that future life lived out in part right here and now. Paul uses this language all the way through his letters of uh, this idea of a down payment, right? When you go and you put something on lay-by, you put a down payment on to say, oh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to pay the rest of it and I'm going to fulfill that payment. Well, Paul calls the Holy Spirit our down payment. He says in, First Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1.22, he says, He has also put his seal on us, that's God, has put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So the Spirit that we enjoy now is the beginning of the life of the kingdom that is to come. He says later in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. 
He says in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. So he's like, okay, you guys are going to inherit all this stuff. You've already got the Spirit here now. He's the down payment. He's the first part. But can you imagine how much more it is going to be until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory? That's what the resurrection means to us. It's a way for us to enjoy the kingdom here and now, to get a foretaste of first fruits of that kingdom and then expectantly look forward to all that God has for us, to that Revelation 21 life, when we live in the very presence of God with no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. So we have the opportunity to take hold of that today because we're reminded of it. And so I would urge you uh, to do this, to take hold of it. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to transition into a time of response this morning. I'm going to explain exactly what's going to happen, but let me pray first. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for your death, because we know what can wash away our sin, nothing but the blood that you shed on the cross that day. Thank you for the resurrection on that first day of the week that gives us the hope of the resurrection life to come and the fact that the kingdom has broken in here and now and we can participate in that life. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we ask that you would help that to sit deep within us and really spread from our heart through to the rest of our being and out into our life so we can live from that place of deep gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.